warm welcome to First Move this Wednesday. And as always, lots to cover, including the down, a late summer win streak. It's now five for five. The Bulls also hoping retail results can help the rally thrive. But a key driver of the economy, housing, showing a lot less drive. European gas prices and UK inflation not yet ready to dive. And Elon Musk buying Man U? Well, we could lie just to keep your hope alive. However, let's hope on Wall Street for gains there that we can derive. The US futures, as you can see, giving back some of those recent gains. Europe also down too amid news that UK inflation rose by more than 10% year over year in July. That is a fresh 40-year high, as you would expect. Bond yields in the United Kingdom responding as one would expect. They are higher on fears that the Bank of England will have to get more aggressive just to tamp down those prices. It's a similar concern all over the world, including in the United States, too. New Federal Reserve minutes out today could show the hawks firmly in command and not prepared for a market-friendlier rate pivot, at least not for now. Inflation, of course, the number one concern for U.S. consumers, as well as those policymakers, target the retail giant today, completely missing the target. Profits coming in more than 30 cents below expectations. Price-conscious consumers forcing the firm to enter inventory purgatory, slashing prices on unwanted goods. The company, though, themselves striking a more hopeful tone later for the year. Now, on the national level, U.S. retail sales not rising, but not declining either last month overall. Solid gains when you strip out energy and autos. Christine Romans joins me now. We did have some fun and games on our, our team this morning when we were trying to ascertain what on earth happened with these numbers. Um, <laughs> it, when you strip everything out, it's OK. It's like, well, hang on a second. What are you leaving? Um, but I think the key point is we did see fuel prices come down and people use yeah. that money perhaps to spend on, on other things. You're right. We were looking inside these numbers because the story is not that headline unchanged from June to July. And it's not the story year over year. Retail sales up 10.3 percent. It's behind those numbers. You saw gasoline uh, sales fall. That's because gasoline prices fell. Right. And that freed up money in a lot of Americans uh, pocketbooks to spend on other things. We also saw this kind of mysterious drop in, um, in in auto sales. We'll see if that's revised or what exactly was happening there. But when you take out autos, you take out gasoline, you had a healthy increase um, for the month for uh, retail sales. And so I think that's something that already a couple of economists are saying they're thinking about raising maybe their, their third quarter um, GDP numbers if this is going to translate into real consumption um, that is, is a little bit stronger or above trend. So well, you know, it's just one report, of course, but when you take that with all those retail earnings, you can find these signs of resilience in the American consumer. And you can see Walmart, for example, where the consumer was incredibly savvy. We talked about this 24 hours ago exactly. Uh, over at Target, though, a different story where they're having to slash prices to get rid of inventory to keep consumers from spending uh, spending there. And economists have been telling me, Julia, that when you look at at, the, at higher income earners, you know, above, above $100,000 and higher, there's a lot of cash still in, in liquid savings accounts, and there's a lot of money still to be deployed to keep the economy going. It's the lower quintiles of earners, the paycheck to paycheck and, and people who are really kind of on the bubble here. That's where all of this is still feeling very recessionary, and they're the ones who are starting to make the cutbacks. Yeah. 
As always, so much in there I agree with. Resilient retail sales, actually, was the, was the phrase I used this morning before the show yeah. as well. And to your point about those that are earning more than $100,000, again, we talked about this yesterday. That was what the CFO of Walmart said. He said, actually, they're seeing three quarters of the market share gains coming from household incomes yeah. above $100,000, which you know, they're relatively more affluent than those who are suffering the most as a result of these price rises. But even they're being smart about how they're spending the money with the savings that they're using, utilizing the savings that they do have. What's your overall sense? Because Target was a real miss, uh, but it was about in, uh, inventory and it was about slashing prices. Is that an idiosyncratic story, do you think, and, and more about them rather than the sector specifically? Because we're still looking for that R word and the recessionary signals. Yeah. And I see signs of concern. I don't see recession in what we've seen, My, at least for this quarter. Yeah, me too. Well, I mean, I think that the, the difference between you know, Walmart and Target is a management story. It's mm. a, it's it's a what kinds of inventory that they were stocking kind of story, and and just how quickly they reacted and pivoted. But certainly, very interesting to see those two different those two different categories. And you know, what we heard from the Walmart CEO and the CFO too is that their customers are searching for value, and so uh, Target maybe has has a slightly different mix of consumer. Um, it, it'll be really fascinating to see what management does to pivot here going forward. Although you mentioned that the target management is a little more optimistic he- he- going forward. See what happens, Christine Romans. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And on Inflation Nation, the UK prices are rising at the fastest rate in 40 years. And no wonder in just the past 12 months, natural gas prices have risen by a whopping 96 percent, petrol up by 44 percent. Anna Stewart has been pouring over the numbers for us. The key part of this, as bad as that sounds, Anna, is that a lot of what contributed to the price rises here was food. And it was things like cheese, cereal, Mm. eggs, bread, basic. So for the lowest income families... It doesn't feel like 10%. I'm sure it feels a lot higher. Well, exactly. And the headline figure came as a giant shock to everyone, including the Bank of England. It topped their expectations for the last month as well, coming in at over 10%, uh, the highest inflation rate we've seen in the UK for 40 years. And as you say, we saw the same usual uh, categories rising in terms of prices that we've seen month on month in electricity, in gas, uh, in fuel. You mentioned gas prices up 95% over the last year. Absolutely extraordinary. But it's now where we're seeing that delayed effect of increased input costs in terms of energy, perhaps also labor shortages and the struggle and the fact that people are having to pay employees more to retain staff. We're seeing those costs now feed through to many other categories and food in particular. So for the last 12 months, food prices now up 13 percent. And for Brits, Julia, their real income is falling at the fastest rate on record, uh, down 3% uh, over the last uh, last quarter once you take inflation into account. And so what, as you say, is most worrying about that is how is that going to impact the poorest households in the UK? And a report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies earlier this week said that for them, what will feel like 11% inflation for the richest quintile of the nation will feel like 18% inflation for the poorest because so much of their income goes on energy and food. Julia? Yeah, again, you raised two really important points, that it feels far higher for those that earn the least in the country. But also to your point about real wages, what we're saying there is your wages might be going up, your, your boss might be giving you a raise, but if prices are accelerating far more than that raise, you've net got less money. Huge challenge, huge challenge too for the Bank of England, raising rates in the face of this to try and contain prices when growth is already slowing. 
And in many ways, they've been more aggressive than many central banks. Mm. We've had six rate hikes in the UK, and the last one was half a percentage point. Uh, They're expecting inflation to top out in October over 13%. But as I said, this inflation rate uh, for the last month has definitely topped their expectations. And so there'll be many worries, I think, now that they're going to have to take more aggressive action. Plus, what will the UK government do? When you're looking at how you can insulate uh, the lowest paid in the UK, how you can help them with this cost of living crisis, well, we really need a sort of functioning leadership at the top of the government. And right now, we are still in the midst of a very long, protracted battle for a new leader of the Conservative Party to take over from Boris Johnson. And that's got another three weeks to go, which is going to be very painful for people in the UK wondering how they're going to pay their bills in the next few months. They want to know now what help will be given to them. Julia? Yeah, waiting eagerly for more news on that. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Now from hot prices to hotter weather, China issuing the highest heat warning to around 140 cities and counties. The government says the current heat wave is the longest and strongest recorded since 1961. Selena Wang joins me. Selena, we seem to talk on a daily basis about the uh, implications and the consequences of this hot weather. It comes as the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang said to the six largest provinces, look, you have to do more to support economic growth. And it was exactly one of the provinces that we were talking about yesterday that as a result of the hot weather is conserving energy so industry can't work. I mean, something's got to give, surely. Yeah, Julia, this is a story we've been talking about, not just for days now, but for months. This heat wave in China has lasted for more than 60 days, the longest and the strongest, as you say. And it's not just the heat wave and the extreme weather that's hitting China's economy. This is a compounding effect that comes on top of the deep economic pain that China is already reeling from, dealing with because of China's ongoing COVID restrictions and zero COVID policies. And the bad news for the people here and for the economy is that officials say the heat is only expected to get worse. It's caused droughts in large parts of the country. Parts of China's very important Yangtze River have actually dried up with images of the riverbed dried and cracked. Now, to try and induce rainfall, some regions along the river are seeding clouds with planes firing rods into the sky. Now, China's central province, Hubei province, has become the latest to announce that it's going to try this method to seed the clouds. That's because authorities say that in Hubei, province. At least 4.2 million people have been affected by severe drought since June. More than 150,000 people there are having difficulties accessing drinking water and nearly 990,000 acres of crops have been damaged. This extreme weather, it's led to crop failures across China. In the south, the heat has killed crops, while in the north, there's been rain and flooding that's also led to crop failures. Officials have said this extreme weather is putting pressure on inflation. It's pushing up the prices of food like fresh vegetables. This extreme heat we've been talking about how it's also caused not just in China, but the spike in demand for air conditioning that puts a lot of pressure on the power grid. In China's Sichuan province, they've ordered all factories to shut down for six days. This is a big deal because it's a key manufacturing hub for semiconductors, solar panels, and it's going to hit factories of major companies, including Foxconn and Intel. And as I said earlier, China's economy, it's still reeling from the impact of zero COVID, of SNAP 
lockdowns. This is worsening the economic pain. Amid all of this, China's Premier Li Keqiang is saying that the economic recovery in China is at its most difficult point right now. On Tuesday, he made a unexpected visit to Shenzhen, which is China's technology hub, and he met with top officials from six major economic provinces. He met them to urge them to boost support for local businesses. And what he said was asking those leaders to take the lead here in trying to stabilize China's economy, Julia. Selena, great report. Thank you. Selena Wang there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. U.S. Representative Liz Cheney lost her congressional seat Tuesday night to a challenger backed by former President Donald Trump. The Wyoming politician has become the Republican Party's most outspoken critic of Trump. Cheney made no official announcement about her future plans, but she's hinting at a possible presidential run. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now from Jackson, Wyoming. Uh, Jeff, uh, we, can, uh, we can predict or, or talk about what the possible fireworks would be if she chose ultimately to run against a reattempt by uh, former President Donald Trump as well. But actually, for an international audience, what I want to focus on is the fact that of the 10 Republican House members that voted to impeach Trump, she's now the eighth that won't return for, for various reasons. So we can talk about her future, but I think we should also talk about what the future of the party looks like and the ongoing influence, perhaps, of the former president. Well, Julie, there's no question that Donald Trump still remains fully in control of this Republican Party. You could just look at the margin of uh, the defeat from Liz Cheney uh, on Tuesday night here in Wyoming. The Trump-backed candidate Harriet Hageman, who was once a supporter of Liz Cheney herself, uh, defeated her by more than 30 percentage points. So, yes, that shows that Donald Trump is still fully in control of the Republican Party, at least here in deep red states like Wyoming. There is no doubt about that. But Liz Cheney talked in her uh, concession speech that she is planning to continue her fight forward to a wider audience. She called on Democrats, independents and Republicans who want to stand up to the election lies and misinformation to save democracy, as she says, uh, to uh, join her. Join her for what is the ultimate question. But she offered a little bit more of a sense of her thinking this morning on the NBC Today Show. Are you thinking about running for president? It, uh, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the in the coming months, Savannah. I'm not going to make any announcements here this morning, but uh, but it is something that I uh, I'm thinking about, and I'll make a decision uh, in the coming months. So one of the reasons that she's going to wait a few months is she still has four more months in her seat in Congress. And during that time, of course, she is still in her position as vice chair of the January 6th committee that's looking into and investigating the president's role in the attack on the Capitol back on January 6th of 2021. So those hearings are going to begin uh, resume in September. So after all of that is done, I'm told next year she will give uh, some more thought and decide fully to go forward with running for president or not. But in the meantime, she'll have a new uh, committee to uh, basically be in the wings planning on this. Overnight, she actually filed papers with the Federal Election Commission, changing her campaign account to a leadership uh, pack, which is just uh, uh, some, you know, a paperwork to allow her to spend and raise money. But she's calling that the great task. So her new committee is called the great task. Of course, a historic reference to Abraham Lincoln from the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. Julia. Absolutely. I'm just trying to imagine the two of them, Cheney and Trump, on stage as uh, presidential candidates. Fireworks is the, the word I would use. Um, Jeff, we, yeah, we'll see. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Jeff Zeleny there. 
Okay, straight ahead. Not quite a retail rush, but not a fall either. We'll look at the strength of the American consumer next. And the rental car market gets an electric reboot. I speak to the CEO of UFO Drive about overcoming some astronomical hurdles. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Elon Musk creating a commotion with his tweets once again. The richest man on earth said, quote, I'm buying Manchester United. You're welcome. It's one of the world's biggest football clubs with a market cap of more than $2 billion. Just hours later, he tweeted, no, this is a long running joke on Twitter. I'm not buying any sports teams. Paul Monica joins me now for our latest O Elon moment. Four and a half hours, 17 and a half percent, I believe, pre-market share rally games later. The dream was alive. Red Devils were going to be musketeers. But no. Oi, that's that's all I can say, Julia, is oi. Elon at it again. Yes, you pointed out that Manchester United stock, which does trade publicly on the New York Stock Exchange, has paired some of its pre-market gains. But at last check, it's still up about 5%, which is just absurd since Musk has pretty much stated that he's not buying Man U or any other sports teams. I haven't checked to see what the uh, shares of Juventus and Dortmund, which also trade on global exchanges, are doing. Maybe he's going to go after them next. I'm just losing any patience ability with the fact that to Musk's <laughs> ability that Musk continues to make jokes like this on Twitter. It is a publicly traded company. He's got to take things more seriously. I wonder if the SEC is going to slap him on the wrist again. Not that he's going to care, but they might need to do something. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, there's going to be a point where it's sort of the boy who cries wolf, where nothing will be believed on Twitter, but perhaps maybe that's a good thing. I mean, it did occur to me that with the break fee that he may end up paying on the, the Twitter deal, he actually could have bought Manchester United. That's how big that deal is relative to this one. I do have a plan B, though, for, for suffering Man United fans, and it's called the M62. I think there's a 32-mile drive between, uh, between Anfield and um, and old Trafford. So, you know, guys, if you want to go and support a proper team, then Liverpool's just down the uh, road. Who knows? Maybe, <laughs> my, da- I, I, my dad's going to love that comment. I hear that Man City has done better than Man U as of late, which I'm sure is a sore spot for some of your viewers. Maybe oh, maybe he'll goodness. go after them next. Maybe he'll buy the fictitious <laughs> team on, uh, on Ted Lasso. I was about to say, I think they might saying, need a, a new owner as well. So I think, that could I be think a good telling, plot point. Telling Man United fans that they have to go and support Man City is worse, a worse travesty than me telling them to go and support Liverpool. Um, I'm, I'm doing my best for the barely. international audience. I'm more Yankees, Red Sox, American <laughs> sports, tried and true. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah, At least yeah. I'm calling it football instead of soccer. Yes, exactly. We'll leave them to hate me, not you, for, for this one. Um, yes. Paula Monica, thank you for that. I agree with you. Words fail, but we tried. Uh, moving on swiftly. Thank you. Elon Musk may not be buying Man U, but Americans do continue to buy despite rising prices this summer. As we reported earlier, U.S. retail sales came in unchanged overall in July. Positive second quarter earnings from retail giants like Home Depot and Walmart showed consumer spending remains resilient. Strong earnings have relieved some recession fears, but here are some cautious signs too. After Target completely missed the mark as customers scoffed at big discounts. Brian Nagel is Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Oppenheimer, and he joins us now. Brian, great to have you on the show. Um, Let's talk overall 
because there are some, I think, idiosyncratic stories like the inventory build that we saw at Target, which clearly hurt them this quarter relative to, to others that are showing the resilience. What's your take overall? And then we'll drill down. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's an extraordinarily fluid environment. You know, I, and I talk to our investor clients you know, daily, and this is this is the topic we're discussing. Is this like how many puts and takes out there? If I step back, you know, and really analyze closely the data, then probably more importantly, the the commentary from some of these leading companies that have reported lately, like Home Depot. Look, I think the health of the U.S. consumer is actually quite good. You know, despite all these concerns, all these market concerns of a looming recession, looming pullback in spending, a housing crisis, et cetera, the, the health of the consumer looks quite good. Now, I think what we are seeing, and this is probably evident, you know, in results from companies like Target and Walmart, uh, these retailers, I mean, despite their, their, the power they have in the market, frankly, how good of operators they are, you know, they, they, they've been misaligned on their inventory, really misaligned as the economy has been pulling out of the COVID crisis. You know, in other words, made simply, I've said simply, they have too much of product that people are no longer buying. Okay, so they've had to re, they've had to realign that. So that's that's one factor that I think is, is is further complicating this this backdrop. But again, overall, I think the consumer environment here is quite healthy. It's also difficult to judge because the the inventory build was part of the big issues with what we saw for overall growth in the U.S. economy in the first quarter. But to your point, if you didn't have the inventory throughout the pandemic, you struggled as a business simply because you couldn't provide. And we know the supply chain became a problem. So even when I look at Home Depot's results here, we saw sales rising, what, six and a half percent year over year. But the merchandise inventories grew by 38 percent. And I don't know whether that's a, necessarily a good thing now or a bad thing, a good thing because you've got the stock in hand should you need it or a bad thing because at some point you're not going to sell it and you're going to have to discount. How do we how do we separate good from bad in this kind of environment? Yeah, look, great question. So in, in terms of Home Depot, you know, one of the big positives in that model is given what they sell, you know, home improvement products, there's not as much either seasonal risk or obsolescence risk. You know, so so if they are heavy in inventories, they can typically hold on to that inventory and then ultimately sell it you know, at full price without any significant promotions. Now that 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 dynamic is obviously not true, you know, for clothing type retailers or other other chains, other operators that sell more seasonal type product. But so to answer your question, in the case of Home Depot, I'm not too terribly concerned with what seem to be higher inventories. You know, I think to me that does show that the supply chain constraints that have weighed upon the company are, are beginning to let up, you know, so that's probably a positive. But elsewhere, again, I don't necessarily follow clothing companies that closely, but, uh, you know, that's where I would be worried. If you start seeing clothing type companies that are too heavy in inventory, because that would lead to pretty significant price promotions. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And then if we do talk about the likes of Walmart, for example, because what we heard this week was a substitution effect going on, less deli, more canned meats, for example. Uh, I mentioned already on the show, and we've talked about it for a couple of days now with Christine Romans, the CFO, saying, look, actually, we're seeing people at higher income levels coming to us because they're looking for more value. Is that a sign in your mind of impending recession or just smart behavior amid severely rising prices? Because that goes to another question. Are we headed into a recession or aren't we? And what are the retailers telling us at least this quarter in your mind? Sure. So let me, I'll take that in pieces. So first off, I just want to be clear. I mean, I, I don't follow Walmart officially. I've got a colleague at Oppenheimer that does. He does some great work on it. But I, of course, as a retail analyst or consumer analyst, I keep a very close eye on Walmart. And so to answer your questions, look, I think it's, it's, it's when, when Walmart's talking about now seeing more indications of higher income consumers coming to their stores, I think that's a smart consumer behavior. You know, look, there are, look, we can't be, there, there are pressures out there. There's no question. I mean, inflation has been 
aggressive. It has been broad-based, and that those broad-based inflationary pressures are impacting, at some level, consumer spending, or at least the dynamics of consumer spending. So you're seeing even now higher income, more wealthy consumers adjust their spending habits and turn to more of a value-type retailer like Walmart, which to me, again, is just smart behavior. That's not necessarily you know, an indication of some type of significant recession coming. Then on the recession topic, I want to put the caveat out that you look, I'm not an economist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a stock analyst. Of course, I keep a very close eye on the economy. But a lot to me, a lot of this talk of recession just is, is, is largely misplaced. I mean, we're coming off of, you know, within certain areas of retail consumer, you know, we're coming off some extraordinarily strong years. You know, the pandemic and, and, the, and the stimulus associated with the pandemic proved extraordinarily, I mean, it was a very a massive tailwind, you know, for goods-related spending. So I think inevitably, you know, we're going to see slower spending in those categories as, the, as these as dynamics sort of say normalize. To me, that's not necessarily consistent with the traditional definition of recession. You know, so I, I, so I think a lot of the talk, I mean, my point I make is I think a lot of talk of recession may be misplaced. I mean, trends are slowing. They're normalizing. But again, that's I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, which is why we go from smart spending to um, smart analysts that I'm lucky enough to have on the show to help us separate the two. And uh, forgive me for uh, throwing all sorts of questions at you that um, are perhaps not in your remit, but um, that's why it's great to have you on. Brian, thank you so much. And I apologise for that. <laughs> Managing Thanks Director and Senior Analyst at Oppenheimer. We'll speak again soon. Thank you. Okay, at a time when the cost of renting a car is out of this world, UFO Drive promises to blow up the market with fixed prices and electric cars. The CEO of this driving disruptor, up next. Welcome back to First Move and sadly not such a wonderful Wednesday on Wall Street. The Dow falling for the first time in five sessions. The S&P slipping from a three-month high as investors await the Federal Reserve's July minutes meeting. Meeting minutes. UBS, the latest broker warning against chasing stocks higher, with the Fed likely tightening on into next year. Consumers remain cautious too. U.S. retail giant targets profit plunging 90% from last year, as we've discussed, as buyers continue the search for cheaper alternatives. Smart spending, Brian just called it. Chinese tech giant Tencent, meanwhile, also reporting its first ever year-over-year revenue drop amid weaker advertising sales. And of course, China's second-in-command today also warning the country is, quote, at its most difficult point and imploring the wealthiest provinces to support growth. Okay, long lines, pages of paperwork and no guarantee you'll get what you thought you were paying for. Add to that, soaring fuel costs and renting a car can be a pretty miserable experience. Well, my next guest has been through it all and decided to do something about it. Building an all-electric rental fleet across Europe that promises fixed prices, contactless service, all controlled through an app. Backed by Hertz, UFO Drive is now expanding into the United States and picking up momentum with pedal-to-the-metal growth. And Aidan McLean is the CEO and joins us now. Aidan, great to have you with us. Firstly, this was simply about streamlining and digitizing the whole process of renting a car. The added kicker, of course, it's all EVs. Yes, thank you for having me this morning, Julia. Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, UFO Drive, as we pronounce it here in Europe, um, came about from my own personal frustration, having gone through hundreds of poor car rental experiences. 
I'm sure many viewers have had the same experience of the long lies, paperwork, you know, being pushed insurance you don't need or fuel options you don't need. Uh, and, you know, out of pure frustration, I decided to do something about it back in 2018. And in mid-2018, myself and co-founder Renault Marquet, we launched UFO Drive in Luxembourg, where we live. And since then, we've grown to uh, 20 locations in 10 countries. And now, just in the last week and a half, we've launched in San Francisco. I mean, this has been incredibly fast growth through a really tough period in time as well, particularly where people were commuting less, um, which I think is kudos to you. I think a lot of people watching this will absolutely agree with the uh, the experience of trying to rent a car. But um, just give us a sense of, of what you can get. How long can I rent this for? Uh, the fixed cost? How the whole thing works in practice? So we wanted to, we looked at the top 10 pain points of car rental, as we outlined a moment ago, and we tried to automate every Every single part of the customer experience. With UFA Drive, it's 100% about the customer experience, solving everything in car rental that people hate to make them want to love it, and also then trying to find a way to transition people to electric mobility easy, fast, and simple. So what we what we did is we built everything into the app. So with UFA Drive, there is no paperwork, there's no queuing, there's no uh, being pushed insurance or fuel options. You go straight to your car. We call it a two-minute arrive and drive. You book it completely on your app. You can arrive at your location. You are uh, handheld via the app all the way through the process from uh, registering, from your driver's license to damage inspection, all automated on the app. You then open the car with your app and you simply drive away in two minutes. All the frustration has been taken away. Well, that's only really a beginning of the story. So once you drive out of the, the what we call an UFO bay or our location with UFO Drive, we are monitoring and watching and helping you all along the way to make the transition from old internal combustion rental to electric uh, rental yeah. as easy as possible. So, you know, to try and take that range anxiety and all the things people worry about with electric cars away. And that's what we've done. That's what our technology uh, does. We've had uh, no range and charging issues and over... 20 million uh, kilometers, 16 million miles since we launched UFO Drive. That was exactly what I was going to ask you, is for people that are using an EV for the first time, the charging anxiety. I mean, I can think of lots of different pain points to, to your point. I believe you provide the first 150 uh, kilometers free. What's the cost after that? And, and what proportion of the people that are actually borrowing these cars even go um, above that? quite frankly. And well, I know you also track to provide when the battery's running down and where the nearest charge point is, because for me, this is critical to the to the technology that you're providing as well. 100%. Well, you're, you're talking about two points there. Firstly, price transparency, transparency and simplicity. And secondly, managing your electric journey. So I'll address the first one first. Like one of the things people hate about car rental is you never really know the price you get till you get to the end. You get extra fuel options, surcharge options, premium location fees, all these things thrown at you. With UFO Drive, the price is up front. So you can rent, uh, say, in a, in a midweek from less than $90 uh, for a one-day EV uh, to maybe above $100 for a weekend. Now, all charging is included in our price. So it's like free fuel. So when you take a like-by-like basis into account, we are actually cheaper than renting an ICE car from the traditional rental companies uh, when you take into the fact that uh, every single mile that you, you charge with, UFO Drive pays with. And we do that because we have connectivity now to almost 200,000 charges on our network. So what our app does, and to address your second point, our app directs the customer to the nearest available charger because we are monitoring the battery for you. We always say to our customers, don't worry about range anxiety. We'll worry about that for you. So when a customer is out in its journey, out, out in their journey, they will receive an alert when their battery hits 50% or 30% or less. If their battery gets critically low, and let's say, for example, they weren't paying attention or they're, they're just not familiar with EVs, 
our call center will automatically call them to hand hand hold them to the nearest charger where Ufa Drive will pay for their charging. So that's that's a key, key part of trying to encourage people to transition to electric, that they don't need to worry about range and charging. Uh, because you know, there's a lot of a lot of publicity around range and charging. I personally believe that range of an EV is irrelevant. It's all about having really easy and simple UX when you arrive at a charger or when you arrive at a charger knowing it's going to work or you can pay for it. And that's what Eve, our, our app does. In terms and of mileage, not, that wasn't- And they're not being a massive queue. And they're not being a massive yeah. queue, by the way. <laughs> Let's be clear. More, Quick question. Just a moment. Especially yeah, the moment exactly. in airports. So, so crazy, yeah. I know. Is the biggest challenge going to be scaling up in terms of cars and having the cars available for the people that want to use them? And we're watching prices go up. I know you've got some great names, Tesla, Hyundai, but I'm watching the the queues and the wait times even for Teslas increasing to to really worrying levels if you're trying to um, scale up your fleet. Is that, in addition well, we, to, to the money, well. going to be part of the problem? Yeah, we, we- yeah, we've done well to date in terms of accessing fleet. Like our, our business plan is not to have a, a ridiculous number of cars. It's all about the user experience in lots of locations where people can access it in downtown or in airports. So, so far to date, we haven't come across massive delays and issues. We've been very careful how we handled our fleet. Um, it was always about the technology first and getting the prime location established second, which is what we did. And in some respects, Julia, and to an earlier point you mentioned, that saved us during the pandemic because I can tell you the yeah. pandemic was not in business plan. Okay, our first, our second full year of business, bang, travel stops. But we were able to ride that storm because we hadn't scaled the fleet to uh, substantial numbers. But now we are in that process of scaling. And to date, the agreements we have with many of the OEMs are not holding us back in any material way. Yeah. Uh- it's fascinating and it's going to be fascinating to get you back and to track your progress. And um, my apologies. I think you may win the prize for being the CEO who said his uh, own company's name more times than anybody else because I got it wrong. But I saw the planet in your little thing and I was like, it has to be UFO, but I didn't really understand it. So, UFO. It is, it is UFO. Look, I got it right but, now. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is UFO to English mother tongue, but Europeans pronounce uh, you UFO. Oh. oh, that's good. So we're both right. I like that kind of response. Okay, Aidan, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Aidan McLean, CEO of UFA Drive. Thank you. And from a driving disruptor to a mega mission to outer space, NASA finally ready to launch its mega rocket Artemis 1 to fly around the moon. Engineers at the Kennedy Space Center have been testing it for months to prepare for the unmanned mission. Tuesday night, the 98-meter-tall rocket embarked on a slow four-mile ride aboard a giant NASA crawler, just like the shuttle missions and Apollo Saturn V rockets once did. The final countdown for liftoff is set for August 29th. We shall be watching. Now, car space and now chocolate. Can this show get any better? Don't answer that. Uganda isn't known for cocoa production, with 60% actually of the world's supply coming from Ghana and the Ivory Coast. But watch this. For more than 100 years, this family-owned plantation was known for exporting raw cocoa beans. But Uganda is not known for this commodity. Approximately 60% of the world's cocoa comes from Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. However, Uganda's production volume has more than doubled in the last 13 years. Exports have jumped from nearly 14,000 tonnes per year to more than 44,000 tonnes in 2021. Me and my people kept on asking questions. Why is it that um, there's too much demand 
for this cocoa that is being exported out of the country. What comes out of the crop, the cocoa that we're growing on our own farm, and so we discovered it was chocolate. So this gave birth to the business that we call African chocolate today. Stephen Sembuya Magulu is CEO of the African Chocolate Company, a local chocolate producer in Uganda. We started manufacturing chocolate because we saw this as uh, an opportunity to be pioneers in chocolate making in Uganda. In 2014, Magulu's company began producing its own chocolate after noticing the growing market for a refined product. A smart move for the business. Our business has been able to grow massively. We're producing 10,000 chocolate bars a month. This type of progression is one of the goals for the African continental trade area building on existing efforts in production to generate more profits on the continent, boosting opportunities to expand the value chain. In 2022, raw cocoa beans averaged around $2.45 per kilogram, while the price of refined chocolate was around $5 per kilogram. The potential for cocoa in Uganda is very bright. Government is focusing on research and is also providing free seed drinks to the farmers to increase cocoa production. As the sector grows, the government is also planning to build a cocoa processing factory in the region. An opportunity to produce more intra-African trade, changing the game, or at least the region. This is broadening the cocoa market in Africa. Eleni Jakas, CNN. Mm. Okay, that's it for the show. Marketplace Asia is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.